It is one of those classic lines from uh, that Aussie movie, Crocodile Dundee. Uh, I think that was the second one, I think, if I remember, serves me correctly. And it came to mind when reflecting on the armour of God, which we are going to focus on today, and I have never had such a spectacular prop available to me uh, as a uh, genuine suit of Roman armour, courtesy of Jeff Bloor. Uh, there was a suggestion that I might put it on during the service. <laughs> Anyone who suggests that I might just suggest a volunteer from the congregation come forward and I mean, we might dress them as we go, but it does uh, uh, add a whole presence and a dimension to how significant and impressive the Roman armour is. I think, I think to check with Jeff, but I think this is a centurion, one of the officers. Uh, and uh, he put to use the last couple of weekends up at Barossa, apparently, at the, um, their fair. It came to mind, at least the quote from Crocodile Dundee, because when Paul refers to the armour, he's, of course, referring to Roman armour, and that would have been a familiar and fearful sight for people throughout the Greek and Roman world. It was a world that was under martial law, and the power of the Roman army was legendary in terms of its efficiency and capacity. There's a sense in which when Paul uses the armour of God as an image for the equipment that God is making available for his people to be about the mission of God, to be faithful in their adherence to the teaching and the example as they seek to follow Jesus. Paul uses the illustration of the armour almost in a sense of saying, you think that's armour. Let me show you the real armour. Because the armour that Paul was talking about is even more impressive. It goes deeper and it has a capacity that exceeds any human or earthly equivalent. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's struggles, the devil's schemes, sorry. Today actually marks the end of the series that I commenced back in February as we look at the mission of God, shalom in the sanctuary of God, the image of God's uh, protected garden where growth and flourishing and well-being and fruitfulness emerges as an image, as a, a picture of the movement from the first chapter of the Bible right to the last chapter of the Bible. God's mission is a creative, nurturing one. And as we've been looking at the letter to the Ephesians, Paul develops that mission plan of God as the mystery, as something that is now revealed and explains how God has been at work since the beginning of the world, how through all things in and through the, the name and the working of Jesus are being drawn together. There is a goal, there is a purpose, and it is characterised by the character of God, by his humility, by his compassion, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, that which can enter into the messiness of the world and transform it, redeem it into something that is good and life-giving. Paul is now coming to the conclusion of this letter. It has been one in which there's been a lot of uh, rhetorical flourish 
is the, the term it's used. It's a lot of uh, sweeping language, encouraging, persuasive language that Paul has been employing. And now, in effect, he looks at the congregation. Remember last week I said as he looked at the, the gathering in the house church through the letter and addresses everyone there, addresses the, the head of the household, addresses all the members of the household, the, the wife, the children, the slaves, and says, you are now part of a bigger household, the household of God. And you have a, a heavenly master who is greater than any earthly master. And to indeed, any earthly master will give an account. And now Paul describes, as you go out into the world, in a very realistic knowing, that that is a vulnerable place to go. The population of the church at that stage was minute. (laughs) It was less than a speck in the eye compared to the numbers of the Roman Empire. But Paul says, you go equipped. And he uses the language of the armour for that equipment. But notice the language that Paul uses is military language. Take your stand against the devil's steam, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Later on he says, put on the full armour of God that you may be able to stand your ground after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. And then he goes on. You might recall back in uh, last year or two, I'm sure you would have probably gone and taken part in a tug of war at some stage. Well, maybe a few years ago than that last year. Uh, at some stage in your life you might recall that challenge of a tug of war and the big challenge is to stand firm. Hold your ground, don't be pulled. And that's the language that Paul is using here. So as we go and look at this imagery... A couple of things to note. First of all, the armour in and of itself was not that effective if it's just an individual wearing it. Someone could come around behind and that it's actually not nearly as protected. It was designed to be used in a group formation. Now, a number of years ago, we actually had a similar sermon by Daryl Teague illustrating, I think he did a children's talk on the armour of God, And he says that the formation was close to a scrum. Those who know rugby, and Daryl being Daryl was actually in an all-blacks jersey, as it happened, at the back of the church and gathering together the troops for a scrum formation. He said, we need to be together. Over the last weekend, it would probably be the Wallabies rather than the all-blacks. But anyway, the notion is right, but you can see how it is only effective when it's in that group formation. A standalone a soldier in the Roman army was exposed. In fact, the, uh, the equipment is not the most agile to move around. So we need to remember that this armour is a collective one that we together, as a church community, all need to put on if it is to be effective. And I'll come back to that towards the end when I uh, highlight, as Paul does, the importance of prayer. Gathering together for prayer is part of our collective putting on the armour. So the image is there and it's fairly well known. So there is the the belt of truth, which is uh, um, not as impressive as the rest, but no less important uh, to be fully dressed with a belt of truth. And I want to focus on the 
what it signifies rather than the item itself. Because truth is not something we can take for granted these days. We live in a postmodern age where the notion of truth has been so deconstructed, so subject to doubt and question that people say there is no truth. Indeed, it's ironic that Pilate was the one who said, what is truth? <laughs> Pontius Pilate, when he was challenged about Jesus. There is a reality of truth, and it actually makes common sense. You can't just have anyone making up anything and everything and saying, oh, what's true to me? You know, I can't just go out there and saying, well, you think the earth is round and the cosmos is like that, but I think it's actually flat and it's all that. You say, that's not truth, that's ridiculous. When you go to the court of law, not looking at any lawyers in the congregation, but I imagine what chances you have when you're asked to swear the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And if you were to say to the judge, well, I'll give you my truth, you know, that's not good enough. We need to recognise that truth matters. And we have the truth available to us. Do we know everything? No, we don't. Are there many questions? Yes, there are. Yet we can affirm that the core truths about life and purpose and where God is to be found has been revealed. And we can hold on to it with confidence. The belt of truth. Then we have the full body armour of God's righteousness. Again, you can see the body armour that wraps around the torso. It wraps our, covers our vital organs and it is one of the essential defensive elements. In fact, of the various items, only one of them is an offensive uh, item, which is the sword we'll come to later. The rest of it is all protective. And I guess in a uh, uh, modern-day context, perhaps not quite as impressive, but more, more versatile. We see it these days increasingly with police who wear these vests that are protective against attack. And uh, something of that image of God's righteousness, the body armour of God's righteousness. First of all, we notice that this righteousness is primarily God's. God is to be trusted as holy, good and right and will do the right thing and he will uphold all that is good and right. And God is constant and unfailing and faithful and to be trusted. Those half-truths that were sown in the Garden of Eden and the, the, uh, the narrative of the serpent coming into the garden, and it is a primeval narrative, those half-truths that is God really to be trusted? No, God's just been taking care of himself. We need to be set those to one side. I love the image as I reflected on it. I've been wrapped around by God's righteousness. Isn't it an incredibly positive image that we are wrapped in God's righteousness to protect us? And that is the righteousness that is then gifted to us in our relationship with God. Then we come to the gospel of peace. And uh, Jeff actually has a pair of uh, uh, the sandals. And the, the point here is made that the, uh, the footwear is uh, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It is uh, versatile. It is agile. It is able to change direction and to, to move as needed, to navigate the various different forms of terrain. Actually, as I was thinking about it, very different from our modern 
footwear that our, our soldiers get, which is not the most agile, although I'm sure that they are, I think they used to be South Australian made at one stage. Um, but the gospel of peace, remember this language of peace is the language of shalom. It is that word that encapsulates the mission, the missional purpose of God, the wholeness, the flourishing, the restoration, the making good. All that language is conveyed through shalom. This is how we can stand firm when we, when we uh, have that as what, where the rubber hits the road, is at that level of uh, the gospel. And then we come to the shield of faith. And here the, uh, the main troops had the, the squarish shields, the rounded one. I need to check with Jeff, but I think that comes with a, 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 uh, the officer who stands to one side. When it is put together as a formation, it's almost impenetrable. By itself, it becomes almost an encumbrance if you're just trying to carry it around. But the shield of faith has a particular role with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, we need to go back and remember that Paul said the struggle is not a struggle against flesh and blood. It's not as though it's taking on the might of the Roman army. He says it's much bigger than that. It is a cosmic struggle. Our struggle is against the devil's schemes. It is against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, at an evocative level, we can picture that with a gathering storm clouds and recognitions and that whole apocalyptic imagery that comes from the confrontation of good versus evil, that which is destructive against that which is creative, that which is characterised by hatred over against that which is loving, that which is pushing for fear as opposed to that which is affirming and kind. We can picture those sort of qualities, but often it starts in our head. It starts with those accusations of hypocrisy, of doubt. Who do you think you are? If people really knew us, what would they really think? The shield is to protect us from those accusations. In fact, the word that's used for Satan is is the accuser, tossing out those thoughts into our head. And there we need to have that spiritual shield to protect us from those questions. Then we come to the centre of it all. Since the, the body armour has protected the heart and the vital organs, but the head protects the centre of our, the control centre of who we are, if you like. So we have the helmet of salvation. And finally, we come to the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Sometimes that's used as though the word of God is a shorthand for the Bible, but here it's much bigger than that. When God speaks, God's word is powerful. And I love the imagery here that it is the sword of the spirit. It is not thumping something to hit someone over the head with, if you like, but it is something that is energetic. It exposes. It also cuts to the heart of things. But also brings energy and life. I had one version of this with the um, uh, a Lego model with a sabre sword, you know, those lightsaber types of images. 
but it's imagery that almost defies our imagination. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Not just that God communicates, but God is active. God is doing things, and things are changing as a result of God's activity through the Spirit. A book which I uh, come back to from time to time, I actually met the author. She's a very slight woman over in uh, the UK called Alison Morgan, a book called The Wild Gospel, Bringing Truth to Life. And I came back to it when I was reflecting on it this week. And uh, one of the passages I love in this book by Alison Morgan, she started life as a, um, uh, she's one of those scarily uh, clever women doing a PhD at Cambridge University in a a very atheist background until God entered into her world and broke down her, her uh, constructions about purpose and meaning. But one of the quotes that she comes, I just want to read the quote and let it stand as it is. She writes, We stand in the church at the end of a long process of accommodation in which we have unconsciously sought to harmonise the gospel with the assumptions of our culture, a culture in which abandoning the quest for absolute truth has embraced a new set of values, rationalist, materialist, technological, reductionist. The effect is that we have gradually turned the gospel from something subversive and life-changing to something tamed, packaged, and institutionalised. The gospel has been squeezed out from under the platform of our lives and become merely a picture on the wall. Familiar, but essentially unrelated to everyday reality. Isn't that a powerful comment? Where do we go with this, Paul says? Well, we put the, God, this armour into action when we pray in the Spirit at all times, on every occasion. Stay alert, be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And that is why we have this call to start intentionally gathering for prayer. We pray privately, we also pray uh, in a day-to-day sort of way. But we could do so much more by way of praying intentionally, gathering for prayer. In a few weeks on the Friday, the 16th of September, um, we have a a gathering in the morning for prayer as we lead into St Matthew's Day over the weekend. And we're hoping to make it a regular pattern. We realise that not everyone will be able to come. But let's start that pattern of praying in the Spirit intentionally, And prayer isn't just our speaking. It is sitting and listening and reflecting and sharing together what we believe God has been sharing us. That is the game changer at the front line. As we have a lot of exciting ideas emerging about how we can be a gathering point for community, some of the ideas that we have been inviting and are beginning to to take root, they will come to nothing unless we do that preparatory work of prayer and sustaining and upholding in prayer. Let us not forget that that armour is so much more powerful than anything else that we might 
turn to. So, just a word of encouragement to conclude. At this stage, when Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, they may have numbered about 40. We know in the year 40, this, these figures come from a book by a guy called Rodney Stark, The Triumph of Christianity. There would have been about a thousand believers at that stage across the various different church centres Jerusalem, Antioch, Ephesus, Corinth, and into Rome. Remember, a house church would normally be about six to ten people, a big house church was about 25. How could that movement take on the power of the Roman Empire and bring change? Watney Stark has done numbers and he showed that uh, by the year 350 in Roman history we get to that stage um, where the, the empire becomes officially Christian, not because of its pronouncement, because the grassroots had been done. People were ready and already in that space. Close to 32 million people by 350 about 300 years later. How could that have happened? Well, he worked out that in about the year 50, there was about uh, 7,500 people across the various cities. Another decade, uh, sorry, another half century, about 40,000 by the year 100, about 110,000-ish, around 180. About 210 around the year 200, sorry, about the year 200, about 210,000. And so he's calculated from what we know about what was happening in various cities around the place in the Mediterranean world before we arrive at that figure where the whole empire embraces the faith. And I say not just because it was a pronouncement, but because the growth had been happening already. Now, that growth was not a constant line. There were lots of different steps and moments. Most of the growth happened through times of persecution. But if you average it out over that period of time, what sort of growth would be needed year on year to reach that sort of figure? From 40, sorry, about 1,000 in the year 40 to about 32 million? Or 3.4%. We shouldn't underestimate that that little growth changes things and builds as it develops. We do face challenging times. The world has gone a full circle, a bit like it was in the first century. We're now we're not the privileged majority group who has a, a lot of status and resources and uh, the impressive profile in the community. We are a minority, a significant minority, yes, and we still have in Australia freedom to worship and to gather. But we should not underestimate that we need to make sure that that gospel that we affirm is not a picture on the wall to use Alison Morgan's terms but becomes the platform becomes the seedbed for our life and our discipleship and our expectation that God is at work bringing growth peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Amen.